Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Today, an extended episode for you on the Kelly criterion or the Kelly model and how to maximise your long-term wealth. So the Kelly model is the model that is proven to maximise your long-term wealth. So there's a lot to cover off, so let's get straight into it. Steve, welcome as always. Do you want to start off, let's talk a little bit about how you first got interested in the Kelly criterion in the first place. Right. I first got interested through reading Nassim Taleb, Fooled by Randomness. And even before that, I was reading my favourite author, who is now dead, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who used to write about evolution and stuff. But in that, he used to talk a lot about statistics, right, and about the way things were distributed and whether it was a normal distribution and whether it had a skew and this sort of stuff. So I got interested in that from a long time ago. Then when I morphed into doing investing and Talib came out with his books, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, Anti-Fragility, Uh, and the latest one, um, Skin in the Game, was basically what you were reading about was the way things happen, so to speak. And so there are sort of two models, if I can put it that way. When uh, The more I read about Kelly, the more I realised that it was a better reflection of reality. Now, that's a bit of a big statement, but what you will find is when I looked at the way the markets operated and other things operated, it wasn't according to the normal distribution, which for a long story, and we'll talk about this in a minute, came out of, you know, physics and um, stuff about randomness, uh, things about normal distribution, like we talked in the previous episodes about, you know, non-correlated data points and all that sort of stuff, independent things. So that was how I got interested in it. I started reading more and more about it and um, then came to see how they use it in investing. The more I read about it, the more I just went, well, this just makes a lot more sense than buy and hold. And it just seemed to accord with reality better than the buy and hold model did. Yes, I I think um, when I first came across a bit younger than you, it was probably reading uh, Robert Hagstrom and talking about the Warren Buffett oh, yeah. approach, you know, like yeah. a, a, there's been a, a zillion books on Warren Buffett, but yeah. that's one of the, one of the better series. And he basically talks about the Kelly model and the Kelly investor. So that yeah. Buffett being famously a focus investor, and when the odds are in his favour, he doesn't die wondering and bets big. And uh, I remember in that book actually, there's a very simple equation: two p minus one equals x. Yeah, yeah. And it's so uh, well if you are 100 percent of something ha- certain of something happening well put 100% of your of your wealth into that that outcome and you'll become very wealthy now of course in the real world 
very few things are 100% certain. What the, the academic papers on Kelly also show is that while sure there can be great opportunities at any point in time, it's not a one-time event. There'll always be more opportunities, yeah, yeah. so you never want to be fully invested. Even when everything's on sale, you still want to be around for future opportunities. Yep. It essentially contradicts what we learned in business school and accounting school about the efficient markets hypothesis and yep. Markovitz. Maybe just to fill in listeners a little bit, just there on the on the Markovitz theory and the, the efficient frontier of investing. Yep. Essentially, what happened was in about the 19... I'm, I'm going to miss bits out here, but this is the, the sort of general story. Just just quickly, if you want to read about more of it, you can read about it in that book, Fortune's Formula by uh, William Poundstone. A great read. The other one, which I'll mention later, which the guy who really did Kelly investing in the stock market was this guy called Ed Thorpe, a man for all markets, multi-billionaire out of being a Kelly investor. Now, how did it start? What happened was essentially in about the 1950s, Harry Markowitz developed this theory. There's always been this idea of how do you maximise your money, you know, with gambling. So there's a whole raft of history about what's the most appropriate strategy to, you know, to maximise your money. Markowitz came up with this thing that said, or a theory, which he called the efficient market theory, which was based on a few assumptions One of them was that all the investors had the same knowledge at the same time. So in other words, you and I had the same amount of information. Now, we might have a different opinion, but we've got the same amount of information. That's one of the key ones. The other one was that basically volatility is risk. And what Markowitz said was, look, because volatility is scary, people will forego that for, you know, a nice steadier income stream or, a, or a, you know, something more, not like this, but something more like this. And so he came to the conclusion, long story short, he came to the conclusion and his model was about a one-time investment. And this is why we harp on about investing is not a one-time thing. It's a, it's a, series, of, it's a series of investments in different timeframes. That became very successful. Kelly brilliant guy, mathematician. He took a theory from Claude Shannon, who invented information theory. And so in short, what Kelly said was, well, if I actually, unlike Markowitz, had an edge, and let's say it's information, then I would actually be in a better position to gamble according to the odds. So in some senses, Markowitz would say, you just keep putting the same amount of money down. What Kelly said was, well, hang on, what if I've got a little bit of a special knowledge, what they called an edge, where the 10 to 1 bet was actually showing 10 to 1, but it was really a 2 to 1 chance. And what Kelly said was, well, if that was really a 2 to 1 chance, but you could get 10 to 1, you should probably put a bit more money in it. And he worked out a formula that would basically say, According to the laws of randomness, no matter what happened, what the outcome was, over the long term, you would make the most money. And it all boiled down to basically a couple of things. One was having an edge, right? And the second one was fractional betting. So instead of saying, well, look, I've got 100,000, I'll plonk it all on this bet. Well, don't do that. 
if the odds are really good, you might want to bet 70,000. But if the odds are awful, you haven't got an advantage. So it's like a coin flip. You don't have an advantage. Why would you bet on a coin flip? Because it's random. But if I said to you, listen, Pete, uh, the, the dice are stacked and it's always going to roll up on six and you can get 10 to one when you know it's really like two to one on, you'd put a lot of money in it. And so Kelly developed that formula, which showed you how to bet in in certain situations. Yeah, so uh, good case in point. Um, I think we've talked in previous episodes about early visits to the casino. And I think, you know, intuitively, we, we kind of know this stuff. If you're betting on roulette, you know it's just pure luck and the, the house has the edge because it's got the zero or the double zero. That's right. That's right. If you're playing blackjack, you do know that if you've got a strong hand, well, it makes logical sense that you're not going to, you're going to bet more on your stronger hands and less on your on weaker, the weaker hands. Hand, yeah. So people know this stuff, but somehow it gets lost when it comes to investing. Well, that's how the pros bet. The pros go, I've got a really great chance, bet more money because mm. the odds are, you know, in your favour. And uh, back in the early days of casinos, that was what led to card counting before they uh, used multiple decks. And uh, people used that formula successfully. Now, when it comes to investing, you talk about an informational edge. So Markovic's, uh, I think it's one of those, almost like a brilliant university thesis. (laughs) And uh, it doesn't work. Well, I guess it's one of those things that there is something in it in the markets are efficient to a certain degree and they're more efficient maybe than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, but when you're looking at an informational edge, well, there's a couple of things that spring to mind. One is that we know that markets cycle. We know that stock markets are mean reverting. Yeah. We also know these days, of course, as well, that we're not constrained to investing in just Telstra and Combank and a few local shares. We've got a whole investment universe. Yeah. And there'll be sectors that uh, become cheap. There'll be countries that become cheap. Yeah. And we know because of mean reversion and market cycles, that you actually do have an informational edge and therefore it does make sense to place your bets on the higher probability events and steer clear of the high risk events. Yep. Um, so in terms of how you apply that to uh, the Kelly model and, and capital growth theory or the capital growth strategy, how, yep. how does that all fit well, together? If you think about it, it, the way to do it is probably use it uh, uh, to probably think about it, and I always like to use card games because they're fairly easy to imagine. What Kelly said was, have you got an informational edge? Okay. So what Thorpe did, Thorpe toddled off to the casino to see if this theory would work. In a casino, it's not completely random, as you mentioned, because the house has an advantage, right? That's the way they set it up. So what Thorpe did was he would go to the casinos and do the card counting. In the old days, and it takes a bit of history, in the old days, there would be a deck of cards, 52 cards, and they'd play, right? Now, if you draw, if we're playing blackjack and you draw an ace, that's a good chance that you get a, if you get a face card, you win a lot of money, okay? What Thorpe said, which seems so sort of plain now, was, well, if I can count the cards that are gone out and I can say, well, look, I know there's three kings, two queens, four jacks and three tens left, and I know there's only 20 cards left, that means that 16 of those cards will deal me a winner, right? So that's when he would say, well, I should bet heavily because the odds of winning are really big, okay? 
Yeah, I'm just uh, casting my mind back to an earlier episode where we talked about casino visits and uh, playing roulette. And we had, uh, when we were, I'm guessing, 19 years old, we had this, we came up with this amazing idea, which of course, there's nothing new under the sun. We thought we had a new idea and that's why you bet 10 bucks on the roulette. Wheel on an evens, odds or evens or reds and blacks. And if you lose... You just go twenty dollars. The martingale so, strategy. Exactly. So yeah. we subsequently, obviously, found out this is called the martingale approach. Yep. Which works until it doesn't, because what you find with that kind of approach to investing is that sooner or later you'll bump up against the table maximum, and there goes your strategy, because you yeah. can you either run out of money or you can no longer keep doubling yeah. your bet. Uh, so that is not an approach for investing, and it's certainly not an approach for going to the casino. Yeah. So what the Kelly model always says is, and what's critical to this approach, the academic papers show it's the proven method to maximise your long-term wealth. However, if you're betting on events where you can lose your capital, well, first rule of engineering, if something can go wrong, it eventually will. Now, stock markets are different from betting on coin flips or card games or whatever, because in any given investment, you don't have to risk all of your capital. And especially if you're investing in an index or an ETF, there's a very low probability of losing all your money. So that's that's one thing which is uh, actually different in stock markets. Yeah. On the same principle of Kelly, you do need to ensure you're around for all those great opportunities yep. in the future. Now, in terms of the Kelly edge and the informational edge that you use as an investor, I mean, an obvious thing that springs to mind is that you often hear this thing, well, the average return, the, the average return is 8%. Yep. It's, a, it's a, almost a mantra of financial services industry and advisors and so on. But what we do know is that when markets are expensive, that average return is going to be low. When markets are cheap, it's, it's possibly double that. Yep. But also globally, there are markets that are cheap and expensive. So what presumably uh, uh, this ties in to the uh, ETF strategy we use and the Kelly model is really it's looking for situations where the odds have already moved in your favour. And in terms of um, the principles of Kelly, ensuring that you don't risk too much on any one position because it's a series of bets, but also you don't have to go in on day one with 100% of your money because even a cheap market can become cheaper. Cheaper, yeah. The difference between Kelly and Markowitz is actually quite profound. Markowitz was talking about, in a sense, using the normal distribution. And as we talked about before, that is about adding data points. So what you do is you say someone walked into the room and they were five foot five, and then the next person walked into the room and they were six foot, and then the next person walked into the room, all uncorrelated, Right, and they were seven foot. So you add a five foot plus a six foot plus a seven foot and you get 18. Divided by three, the six foot is the average. The stock market doesn't work like that. The stock market says, I put $1,000 in and I made 10%. So now you've got, you know, 1,100. Then it multiplies. You don't add next year's returns because you're multiplying from a different base. The reality is you would have to say, well, in January, I'll put in 100,000 and then on December the 31st, I'll sell and come back to January, I'll put in 100,000 and December, I'll sell and repeat the process because that's what the normal distribution does. That gives you the bell curve of returns. Now, that's not necessarily wrong because as we know, over the long term, that is what the stock market pretty well adheres to, okay? So then what you say is, well, if it pretty well adheres to that, 
then when the stock markets are really cheap, you want to take advantage of them because you know they're going to get back to, you know, the average return. And so that, if you can work on the mathematics, says, well, when I'm offering 12%, I should take it because I know it's going to fall back to 8% average, which means it's going to grow, okay, to get that long-term average. The critical part is, as I said, about the addition versus uh, versus multiplication. And that's where you want to, the geometric return is a how you multiply assets. That's the return you get from multiplying assets. That's what's relevant to the investment markets. Addition is not relevant because your market returns are not added together. And this is where there's a mistake where folks say, you want to focus on compounding your returns. Okay, well, if that was the case, I'd wait until I could compound at 12 because that's a hell of a lot better than compounding at four. And the average return they talk about with eight to 10%, as you put in the other day, the RBA have written a paper in Australia and said the geometric return is actually 6%. Now that's not including dividend taxes, blah, blah, blah. But my point being, the geometric return is always lower than the average return. And the impact is where folks say, oh, the average return is 8%. That's good. And then you get an event like 2008 where over the investment time frame, you might say, oh, oh, well, my investment return went from 8 to 7.7. That's okay. But you've lost 50% of your portfolio in the here and now, you see, because you're looking at a compounded return. Just as we talked about two episodes earlier in terms of this is where rebalancing really pays off. Yeah. So you take some of the profits off of the highs. And yes, for one thing, that locks in your profits, but the, the real benefit comes when markets are cheap again and then you've you've got cash yeah. good to go. The stock um, market is even better than what Kelly devised. And the reason why Thorpe is, you know, a multi-billionaire, partially because he looked at these edge over the odds stuff. What we know and what I suspect Warren Buffett figured out a long time ago is if you buy a company that goes to zero, that's the end of it, right? That's the end of the game. But if you buy an index and you know about the CAPE ratio or you are able by some other method, whether it's Buffett indicator or whatever, to say, now I know the stock market's cheap, then you should be putting in more money then. But the flip side is really important. You know, if you go and you play, you play a hand and you win five hands in a row and you've made a bucket of money, well, you don't go and throw the lot on the next hand. You know, the professional investors don't do that. They say, right, I know the way this system works. You know, I'll probably be unlucky and get a couple of dud hands. Why bet on those dud hands? Why? Because Kelly said, well, you haven't got an advantage. If you pull a six and a seven, that's a terrible number. Don't bet, right? Just leave it. As I said, Buffett said, let it go through to the keeper. Wait till you get the ace. Then you can say, right now I'll have a bet. Pretty sure uh, Buffett would have probably said wait for the fat pits rather than using a <coughs> test match cricket analogy. But, uh... but Buffett met Ed Thorpe and Ed Thorpe said to his wife, I think Warren Buffett will one day be the richest man in the world. He could understand that idea about, and when you listen to all those little, you know, cutesy Buffett quotes, they're all just simple uh, quotes about how to use the Kelly criteria in investing. You know, wait for the fat pitch, be patient. Like you said in the introduction, you know, it will maximise your wealth over the long term. That's Buffett saying, my favourite holding period is forever. 
Now, he doesn't mean it literally. He just says, if I know that I can buy something cheap and compound it at 10 or 11%, he can fairly well project out and work out what he's going to be worth. And that's what he does. Let's bring this all into the here and now. So Markovitz led on to this idea there was, there was no informational edge. So you uh, modern portfolio theory, you just diversify, you invest the same amount yep. and off you go. If, if we're accepting that Kelly is the proven model for compounding your wealth faster and more sustainably through the cycles, let's apply that to where we've been in recent years. So there are different measures in terms of how expensive global markets are. As we always say, the US is the big one. It's half of the global market cap. And increasingly, if the US goes down, the rest of the world follows and vice versa. So CAPE ratio is one that we talked about in an earlier episode in terms of it has a very strong correlation with expected returns over the coming decade. And so it uses a smoothed average of earnings. So it smooths out the, the volatility in earnings. It also has an accord with the business cycle. Now, the CAPE was up uh, last year at uh, was 33.3 or something like that. So that's against a long run average, a long run mean of about 17 or a long run median of 16 and a half or so. So yep. massively inflated. And for sure, there is, you know, you may, you may want to take into account low interest rates and so on. But by any measure, US markets have been phenomenally expensive. There are other uh, measures that people use, the Hussman PE, the Buffett indicator. Yeah, yeah price to sales. Yep. What you should find though, and this is what Med Faber has often said, is that it doesn't necessarily matter which indicator you use, as long as you're actually doing it. You're... Most of them are cheap at the same time and expensive. I think this time. is the key point, is that it doesn't matter which of the indicators is your favourite to a certain point. What you'll find is that when the market's expensive, they will generally all show that. Yep. And when the market's cheap, yep. the opposite applies. So in terms of your well two strategy ETFs yep. in particular, if the US CAPE ratio is above 30, presumably you'd be looking at being 80% or more in cash and, yep. and with a view to better opportunities being around in the future. Yep. Um, I think at the, at the time of speaking, the CAPE ratio has dropped very sharply to 24. So, yeah. yeah. So, but wait for the earnings to drop too. Yeah, well, the, yes, that's right. So, CAPE ratio obviously uses uh, historic earnings information. Yep. And uh, as we know, businesses have a tendency to flush out lots of bad news and banks get losses and so on. Um, In terms of how you're applying the Kelly model today, so still predominantly in cash because US is expensive. Yep. Obviously, things are moving now towards better value being around in some parts of the world. So usually what people should work towards is having some kind of written investment plan. So they when markets are going through the biggest turmoil, they're not making emotional or knee-jerk reactions. They're actually saying, right, what did I say I would do in the plan? It's system two thinking. It's cool, calm, and considered. And you can say, okay, well, my plan says when the CAPE ratio falls to under 20, I can go more into stocks. Yep. And when the CAPE ratio falls to 15, I can start really getting in. And then, yep. and then As lower. it goes lower. Yeah, that's yep. right. So how are you applying well, that today? a couple of things. First of all, I look at the CAPE ratio as providing my edge, right? Kelly, remember Kelly said, oh, you've got to have an edge, Okay. So at the racetrack, it was, you know, inside information about horses. Um, with Thorpe, it was about knowing about the cards, okay, what, how many cards are left and how you do that. In my mind, the cape ratio is my edge, right? And it can be anybody's edge. It's no secret. 
So I want to deal with a couple of things about Cape Ratio because you get a lot of buy and hold investors who are quite vociferous about, oh, you know, Cape Ratio, if you'd have bought it 10 and, you know, what they're doing is cherry picking a time frame. So what they say is... Which oh, we're all guilty of, by the way, well, from various points in time. To a certain extent, yeah. And, it, and this is the thing. Kelly said over the long term, right? So you have to think of it as investing and it ties together a few points I want to make here. One is you don't get to demand the return, okay? You get to determine when you buy and when you sell, but the market will come to you and say, Pete, I'm offering two, do you want some? Right, Pete, I'm offering 13, do you want some? That's all you can do. And even those returns two to 13 are based on the probabilities of what's gone on before. We know the CAPE ratio has a really good correlation, about 0.86, okay, with future 10-year returns. So it makes sense to say, look, the CAPE ratio is at 33, as we've been preaching for a while. Now it's down to 23, right? So we've avoided a 30% loss. Now, people will say, oh, yeah, but nobody could have seen the coronavirus or the, you know, the explosion of ships or whatever it was. I don't need to know what it is. Because the market works that when things are expensive, it falls back down. I don't win by going, ha, I predicted the coronavirus. I win by saying I wasn't in the market at that time. So that's the first part. What people do at market tops, the buy and holders do this, which is, oh, well, interest rates are super low. Okay, well, if interest rates are super low, then, you know, that means the economy is not going Low well. growth. Yeah, exactly, should, exactly. Should, so it's it proportional. Reflect, yeah, it should reflect low future exactly. economic growth. And again, when you look at history and you say, oh, okay, so does interest rates have an influence on stock market returns? The answer is actually no, because the Fed in 2000 was cutting interest rates all the way down to a 50% loss in 2003. 1929. Exactly. So when you look at that stuff, you've got to look at it in a realistic approach that's not what buy and hold does. Actually, it's an interesting point because it, what happens uh, at the peak of every cycle is that people come up with reasons why yeah, yeah, this yeah, time yeah. is different. So, oh, it's interest rates. Oh, it's the way they calculate earnings. That's right. Here yeah. we go again. You so know. with the CAPE, specifically with the CAPE, the, yes. the main criticism, share buybacks, yep. uh, low interest rates, uh, amortisation of goodwill, change yep. in accounting standards. There is an element of validity in each of the points individually, but the key point is that the market is massively overvalued, and little you know nitpicking on certain points is is missing the the bigger picture that yeah, yeah. the market could easily go from thirty three cape to who knows twenty fifteen ten who you know there's and nineteen eighty two it got to eight yeah from that point to two thousand you made sixteen percent a year for doing nothing. Why? Now, you can make all kinds of reasons. You know, deregulation, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I understand that. But I'm just telling you that at 8 to 44, you made 650% in 20 years. I think um, this is one of the reasons we talk about statistics over stories as well, because it's, there's no, no real use in weaving a narrative to explain why the Cape went from 8 to 44, because in 1982, nobody was talking about... I mean, I was uh, very young back in those days, but nobody was talking about financial deregulation. Nobody was talking about interest rates falling. Yeah, privatisation, you know. Yes, and a, and a huge global uh, shift in terms of um, the growth of consumerism. All of those things, obvious in hindsight, but in real time, nobody knew that stuff. Yep. And the same applies today. The Cape's at 33.3 last year. We're saying, well, just 
get get into cash because the returns are close to expected returns are close to zero. The downside's enormous. And people start coming up with reasons, say, oh, yeah, but if you'd have applied this logic, you know, there's, there's some twisted logic that help, that happens at the peak of a cycle to justify yeah. things. What Kelly came up with at the start, and this is a really important point about statistics over stories, we all have this subjective personality and it comes out in our opinions of, you know, politics, religion, football, whatever, um, and money. This goes back a way back to Bernoulli who said, if you wanted to maximise your wealth, it wasn't about your personal wealth position, okay? What Bernoulli said years ago, 200-odd years ago, was, look, whether you were a pauper or a millionaire, you should take a bet when the odds are in your favour and you should bet according to the odds because what Bernoulli said was, look, hey, if you win 10 bucks, you win 10 bucks." But what they, came, what they looked at and said, well, hang on, if I'm a millionaire, I'd sort of go, who cares? Whereas a pauper would say, I'm a millionaire because I won 10 bucks. So it was subjective. And that was what they described as declining marginal utility. As you got wealthier, you should get more risk averse. In the stock market, what that says is, as you're getting older, like me, you actually want to start pulling money off the table because if you have, if you have a big loss like we're getting now and like we had in 08, like we had in 2000, what you find is the sudden loss of a large amount of wealth is is damaging where a lot of people in 08 said, we're all right, we've got a million bucks. And then at the end of the year, they went, no, we haven't. We've got 700,000 and we're going to have to go back to work. So my point is what you want to look at, the CAPE ratio is objectively, what do the numbers say? The numbers say at 33, we were at 1929 and uh, we lost 50%. Oh, okay. We were at 2000 and it was higher and we lost 50%. Oh, okay. And in 2007, it was about 28 and we lost 50%. What do you reckon is going to happen at 33? I reckon it's going to be fine and we'll go up another 100%. Now, you could be right. But even if it did that, it goes up to 44. Guess what? It crashes. So that's not me saying, look, the economy's booming and everything's going. We were talking about that six months ago. People were saying the American economy's been really strong, unemployment's low. You know, CAPE ratio. Again, CAPE ratio says when the unemployment is between two and a half and four and a half, it doesn't matter if the CAPE ratio is over 25. If it's over 25, the returns are awful, even when unemployment's low. You know, why? Because that's the statistic. There's no story to it. It's simply a number saying this is the return you'll get. Okay. And that's what inevitably you usually get. Lastly, uh, you may remember I did an exercise last year in terms of indicators of a market near the peak. And full employment is actually one of them because what you see is that after a decade of a bull market, unemployment has generally recovered from the previous bust. And the US was down to the lowest unemployment rate since the 1960s, so yep. the 50-year lows. Australia, not not so much. And actually, when I went through that exercise, you found that probably, you know, of the indicators, maybe 70 to 80% of them were flashing red. Some weren't. Corporate debt in Australia for various reasons. Yep. You know, uh, iron ore prices, essentially. Uh, some of the big miners deleveraged. But so many of the indicators were flashing. Uh, valuations were way too high. 
the general public into the market, classic indicator of phase three of the Dow theory of the cycle, evidence of speculative activity. Well, how long have you got? You know, Bitcoin, uh, Long Island iced tea blockchain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Beyond you, meat. You Uber, name it. Tesla, yeah. drones, there, AI, marijuana companies. We've actually had that for several years, you know, yep. and uh, there's a whole range of indicators you can go through. But in the end, those are just soft indicators. You've just got to look at the valuations as your guide. Interesting you say as well, this does change with your stage in life. Uh, some people find as their net worth increases, they have a tolerance, uh, a risk tolerance increases for at least a portion of their money. Yep. They can gamble it. But for most of us, particularly once you've got kids, you've got more responsibilities as you get older, your tolerance for risk actually declines. Yep. Um, in relation to your wealth. Yes, that's in right. In relation to your wealth. And, that's, and what, that's what Kelly talks about, you know, when he says... As you get closer to your wealth goal, and let's say that's at 65 at retirement, what you want to do is you want to start taking more money off the table. And again, this is where Taleb comes in, because what Taleb said was, look, you should have a a barbell strategy where you're 90% in bonds because next year you want to collect the money and you're 10% in stocks and you're in speculative stocks that if they win, fine. If they don't, well, you don't lose much. So again, you've got to balance according to your situation, but also, again, according to the odds. And what I mean by that is if the market crashes and you're at 60, you should be thinking about putting a little bit more in because if you look at history, you're probably going to get a good tailwind. And then again, that's what the CAPE ratio says, you know, it's cheap. No, no, no. It doesn't. It doesn't care about your subjective opinion, position, age, wealth. It's just saying the odds are good. Would you like some? Whether you're 25 or 65. Yeah, and I think uh, I've noticed a few people say in the past week or two with all the turmoil, this feels way more serious than 2007 to 2009. That maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think most likely what's happened is that people are at a different stage in life. I remember back to the tech wreck in the tech bubble and uh, where I was working in London, uh, I was a young you know, graduate on a contract and there were, it was a bit of a last in, first out or the, some yep. of the weaker candidates, first person to fail an exam, shown the door. It was a rough time for the economy back then. But for me as a, as a young graduate, well, you haven't really got that much to lose in some senses. Uh, you know, I wasn't on the housing ladder. Yeah. You know, the stock portfolio is uh, non-existent. You know, you basically just got a bit of cash in the bank. You know, if the uh, the economy goes down, well, obviously you worry about job security. But if the housing market goes down, well, no loss to me, you know, sort of yep. thing. Then you you move on to the next cycle, 2007, 8, 9. Well, for me, at that stage in my life, that was an opportunity uh, because, you know, two higher income earners, me and my wife, you know, you've got opportunities to buy properties when they're cheap, to yep. get into stocks when they're cheap. Yes. Now, this stage in my life, we're coming around to the next stock market correction. Well, at this stage, I've got a few years on you uh, in terms of youth, but I, I'm much more cognizant of the downsides mm. because I've got two kids. You know, I'm going to have to start thinking about school fees. Yep. So y- you've got to put it into the context of your own personal situation. Yeah. But actually, the market doesn't care. That's and that's right. why you've got to focus on having a plan and the, the overall valuation. Yep. Now, let's finish up on the importance of capital growth theory and position sizing. Because in the end, that's what Kelly is all about. Yes. It's finding the right position size. And when the odds are in your favour, that's when you strike. Yep, yep. 
Kelly is basically saying, as you just alluded to and as I alluded to before, Kelly just says there's a deck of cards and you get dealt a card. You can calculate the odds of every card coming to you, right? Now, you can do that or you can do a feeling, right? And this is what people do combined with things like recency bias, right, in the economy. As we're saying, six months ago, everyone's going, everything's fine. Why? Because last week it was fine. Now, if I said to you, listen, like we talked about with planning, listen, Pete, in six months, we're going to be down 35% and it's going to be absolutely chaotic. Everyone would go, "Mm, I can't see it. Yeah, doomsday. Well, yeah, (laughs) exactly. And and that's why I say to people, I, I basically ignore a lot of stuff about what people's opinions are because we naturally bias. When the market crashes, I can tell you everybody will be miserable. Right. And then you'll be going, oh, it's never going to get any better. And I come along and say, well, the Cape ratio is now at seven and I'm offering you, you know, 13 percent for the next 10 years. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. You know, and this is the reason why the stock market is even better than card games and casinos for Kelly, because Kelly originally put the theory on random events, random independent events and variables. What I mean by that is humans have the capacity to change the odds. So in other words, what you notice in the stock market is it's never totally random to the point where you get a, you know, a 25 hands where you lose every time. The reason why is because at the bottom of the markets and like they're doing now, the governments are saying, right, we've got to fix this. How do we fix it? Right, we're going to put more money into the economy. In a random environment, which is just a card game or something, the government can't come in and say, look, let me reshuffle the cards and I'll put a few more aces in there for you. Whereas in the economy, they can do that. You know, they can say, right, we're going to spend money, we're going to save airlines, you know, we're going to give people money. And so that becomes a positive. It takes a while to filter through because people get sort of, if I can use a a virus term, people get infected by what other people are doing around them even though the odds say, look, this is a really good opportunity. Well, we've got a a recent case in point. If you think back to early 2009, the S&P had fallen to, what, 666? And I I can remember quite clearly talking heads on TV saying, this is a terrible time for investing. Buy and hold is dead. The financial system's on its knees. And yet look at the returns over the following 10 years. 350% in 10 years. Yeah, but then it's amazing how sentiment changes and it's the same at the top of the cycle exactly. last year nobody was interested in uh, sensible you know long-term prudent yeah that's right you know howard mark saying look you know we're we're moving forward with caution and everybody was just moving forward yeah. you know back of the caution let's just go for it yeah and that's what's going on it's coming home to roost why because this is the way markets work through cycles interesting point on the psychology um Something we touched on the other day when we were talking uh, from a book by Maggie Mayhar called Bull. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, the psychology of a bear market. And yep. uh, essentially, bear markets have two fairly predictable phases because they're driven as much by human They're sentiment. all driven by human behaviour. And psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, and this is why some of the greatest ever investors have come from backgrounds other than financial backgrounds. Yep. They could be mathematicians or physicists, philosophers, scientists. Yeah, because yep. they understand the, the human behaviour element. 
And the bear market often comes in two phases. Firstly, the guillotine phase, yep. when fear suddenly goes from non-existent to a very, very, existent. very panicky mentality. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're seeing that at the time of recording, we've had three and a half weeks where the market's dropped 30%. So the fear is very is real good. <laughs> and high, very high levels of volatility. Yep. Uh, the second phase of the bear market is different, as they say in that book. Uh, the quote says, well, it's, it's more the feeling of being sandpapered to death yeah. because at this point in time, there's this general feeling, well, maybe if I just close my eyes and hope, the market might just get better. Yep. And in bear markets, this always happens, especially the fastest moving bear market in history. We're going to see some whipsaws and yes. the market Bear market back. rallies. And that happens in every bear market. But eventually what happens to investor sentiment over the coming years is that people start to lose interest. Then there's apathy. And then the final stage is just pure hopelessness. And that's where people just give up on the whole idea of investing. The death of equities, as they said in 1982. And March 2009, a terrible time for investing. So in the space of three weeks, we've gone from uh, mass euphoria to uh, fear. But uh, a lot of people are saying, is it time to get in? I mean, it's literally just three weeks since the peak or three and a half weeks or whatever. The history of bear markets suggests uh, that's unlikely to be (laughs) the case. As I said it, Pete, in 2000, you know, the Cape ratio was 44. And in 2003, it got down to about 22 or 23. All through that two years... You had these, as you say, the violent bear market rallies, and they were substantial, 15, 18, 20% rallies, where people then would go, ah, I've missed out. It's time for me to jump in. Then it would drop again. Oh, no, this is terrible. You know, so the reason why I use the CAPE ratio is because it's a macro indicator and it tells you generally what's going on. Now, I'm quite happy to be to be wrong if it's, it's like it is currently at 23 and the world gets saved and it races back up to 30, I don't really have a problem with that because I'm not about risking my capital. I'm about not losing money. But what I can tell you is in 2009, when it was low, that's when you start. And what you get to do, and the reason why I'm bringing this up now is the cape has fallen from 33 to 23. That's a substantial fall of 30%. And everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people are saying, right, now's the time to get back into stocks. You know, it's not a time to get back into stocks. Why? Because you've got to look at it in a historical context and say, well, hang on, we know the long-term average is 17. We know there's still basically another potential 30% to go. Now, if you put together some crazy interesting story, that would be good. But what I'm saying is, I know the Cape's gone from 33 to 23 because that's the price of the stock market. The earnings, we haven't seen yet. Now, if the earnings fall 30%, guess what? We've got the same Cape ratio. We haven't actually achieved anything. And the problem is at 33, when, as you alluded to before, when you say to people, well, the the stock market in 2009 in Australia bottomed at about 3,100, we're at 5,000. And people go, oh, it's not going to do that again. And that, and it's funny, it's a bit like, well, that's funny. That's what they said in 2008. Mm. You know, and we got there. The same thing happened in 2009 in the US and in 2000. What we know is we're more correlated than we were ever before. And we know now because markets are used more as a speculative investment than the earnings yield by saying, well, things are expensive, I might step out people are speculating on the capital gain, 
what that is doing is driving and and combined with margin debt is driving much more volatility into the system overall. And so you will get these huge moves really quickly because what it is, is it's, a, it's tied to the notion of a thing called social physics. And it's like a pencil spinning on the, the lead, you know, on the point. You look at it, it looks stable. But then when you just touch it slightly, it wobbles and falls over and collapses, the sand pile argument, you know. And that's what goes on. Because we're more global, we're more interconnected, right? You've got to look at those things and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. But then as we've seen in the last three months, the coronavirus, all that is this time is a virus. Next time it'll be something else. But when the US sneezes and China sneezes, we cop it here regardless of whether we're in a good position or not. And that's what happens. You know, big market gains are followed by big market falls. And if you at least follow market cycles and cape, you will probably do a lot better than saying, I'm just all in, you know, because we know you can have these huge events where you lose half your portfolio. Yeah. And I think uh, just to wrap it up for this uh, session on the Kelly model, I mean, something that I learned years ago is that if I've got a written plan that I can follow, then I, because as you mentioned, the worst thing you can do in a market in turmoil is say, well, I've just got this general Just go feeling. all emotional. <laughs> yeah, I've just got this feeling that this might be the bottom yes. and, or, well, the market is down 30%, maybe I should pile in, you know. If you're making emotional-based decisions, that's only going to increase your chance of loss. If if you've got a considered plan that you came up with in a, in a calm and rational fashion where markets were less volatile, that's something that you can refer to. And if you step outside of your plan, this yep. is what we talked about in the episode on systematic investing, if you step outside of your plan, you need to then think, well, why have you done that? Is it an emotional decision? Yeah. Is your planning somehow somehow wrong and it needs tweaking? Or, you know, you need to learn from that. But if you've got at least some kind of a, a context for investing, and it could be as simple as, as certain CAPE ratios, you're going to change your allocation. Yeah, alloc- the, yep. it doesn't need to even, even be a long plan, two or three pages. I think mine's three pages long. You know, yep. it's, not, it's not highly detailed. It's just a context or a framework for managing my capital through the cycle. And it's not just a, a plan that says, well, I'm just going to keep investing and uh, fingers crossed the market yes. doesn't crash on me. It's saying, well, Absolutely. if the market gets cheap, that's when I'm going to increase my position size. If the market gets expensive like it did last year, and I, as you remember, I copped a lot of flack for saying this, but buy and hold in 2019 was a risky proposition. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get all the all of the usual criticisms. Well, this time it's different because you know, yeah. economy's still strong. Everything's going gangbusters. You know, it all looks good. Yeah, and for about three or four months, or probably six months, you know, you, you start. You know, market makes new highs. People say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, yep. you're you missing know. out on the gains." Yeah, and it can feel that way for various points in the cycle. The market is is switching from a voting machine to weighing machine, and yeah. suddenly. Yeah, markets it are weighs still, a lot less. <laughs> yeah, well, people are still looking for a way through the coronavirus out to the other side. Yeah. And markets are forward looking. But for as long as these cases keep increasing exponentially, it's going to be a, a hell of a roller coaster yeah. ride for markets. And having cash is uh, the best thing. So <laughs> sit tight for a while. That's it. So that was the Kelly criterion. So capital growth theory, position sizing, and how to maximize your long term wealth. And as Steve mentioned, 
uh, little nugget in the middle of that episode. How do people maximise their long-term wealth? Rule number one, don't lose money because as soon as you lose money, you have to work twice as hard to make it back. Always remember that. So if you want to know some more on the Kelly Criterion, check out our book, Low Rates, High Returns, where we go into plenty of detail on that. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.